As you take your seats, please turn your Bibles with me to James chapter 1, reading verses 5 through 8. That's found on page 1011 of the Black Pew Bible there in front of you, James chapter 1. Picking up where we left off last week in verse 5, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. In in baseball, he's called a five-tool, a five-tool. That's a player, a baseball player that can hit for a good batting average, hit for power, they have a good arm, they have great fielding skill, and they can run the base paths. They have all five tools that make you a complete baseball player. They master the skills. You know, perhaps historically, you know, Willie Mays, who could do all those things, or Ken Griffey Jr., or today maybe Mike Trout, or our own Bryce Harper art, you know, the Phillies fan here with me. And you know, for the Braves, perhaps Ronald Acuna, all these other fans that are here. But... Um, James interested in, uh, is not so interested in us being complete baseball players, but rather being, of course, complete Christians. That's what he's talking about in verse 4. He's, he's teaching them these things that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. And of course, it's, it's um, not our physical skills, the ones that baseball players need, but our, of course our spiritual maturity that makes us a complete Christian even as we saw from the end of the book of Galatians. The fruit of the Spirit, it comes to anyone who is united to Christ by faith. By the power of the Spirit, the fruit flow to us, including uh, the fruit of faithfulness, which we could say is basically the same thing as we saw last week in verse 3, steadfastness, steadfastness in the face of sufferings. So last week we saw, you know, James calling us to this, um, this completeness in being a Christian, those who count it joy, even our trials, even our sufferings. And through this, James continues, I think, connecting uh, verse 4 and verse 5 with, with three more components that round us out as Christians, that make us those who are complete. Christians in complete armor, oaks of righteousness, dependable in Christ. The first of these we'll see is wisdom. The second is faith. And the third we might call integrity or loyalty or a kind of single-mindedness. We'll call it integrity for the sake of our outline. That's what we'll work through, those three components that are necessary to make us a complete Christian. Wisdom, faith, and integrity. So let's start with wisdom. Look at verse 4 again with me, as I just mentioned, that he wants us to be perfect and complete, lacking in 
nothing. Verse 4 is telling us why, why we should want or why we should consider our trials, temptations, struggles in life to be joy. Well, because they'll make us complete, lacking nothing. And then verse 5 comes in, now if you lack wisdom, see that word for lacking really is the, the hinge on which James is continuing here. There's an implication in the way it's said. Uh, You can't really be one who thinks of your trials as joys if you're lacking wisdom. If you want that ability, that perspective of how to see the the worst things that happen to your life, the most difficult things that happen in life as joys, you can't lack wisdom. You have to have it. You should ask for it. But what is it? We always need to define wisdom when we come to it in the Scriptures. And we can, you know, it's always helpful to start with what wisdom is not. Clearly, it's not uh, data or information gathering. Surely, no civilization has had more information at its fingertips than our own. I don't think any of us would contend necessarily that our own civilization and age is one marked by wisdom. No, clearly wisdom is not simply knowledge or even a good education. Plenty of people have a good education, great world-class education, and yet, of course, lack wisdom. Wisdom, of course, I would argue is knowing how to apply truth to receive blessing. Wisdom is knowing how to apply God's truth to receive God's blessing. It acknowledges that uh, God is king of the world. It's his creation, and there are rules. He's embedded in his world that, that when we live according to those rules, they give rewards and blessings. I know plenty of people, however, also, you know, might have lots of uh, good answers in Sunday school, an orthodox theology, you know, lots of Bible trivia, and yet not know how to apply the truth of the Bible, God's truth, to their lives. It's one thing, perhaps, to, to know that God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and is being wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. It's another thing to know what difference that makes when you get laid off from work, or what difference it makes when your child has cancer, or what difference it makes when you have to watch your children go through a painful divorce. Do you find comfort in His unchangeableness and power then? Do you remember that our Father is providential over all things, that He sent His Son, who took on human flesh, who is a high priest, who can have compassion because He was tempted, went through trials as we were, and He sent His Spirit, who is our paraclete or comforter, with us now in our trials and suffering? Do you have the ability to apply the theology to the street level, to your ordinary life. This is what wisdom is. Or perhaps we know it's one thing to know the the biblical data of uh, what the Bible has to say about money and lending and investing. Another thing to apply that knowledge to your life in a particular context and receive the reward of good, frugal um, money, uh, care for our money. This is wisdom, living in such a way that the truth of God is applied in our lives that brings us great blessing. And we we pointed out last week, back up in verse 3, 
the way that it is our knowing. He, he says, count it all joy, brothers, when you trial, encounter trials of various kinds, for you know. And I argued that in the knowing there that enables us to count our trials as joys, there was a knowledge of God. And what was implicit there is explicit in verse 5. He's calling you if if you don't have wisdom, if you lack it, to ask God why? Well, explicitly because of God, what He is like. Verse 5b gives us three reasons why you should be asking God for wisdom. Number one, He is the God who gives generously, or more woodenly in the Greek, it would be something like, ask the generously giving God. It is His very character. It's the godness of God that He is one who gives lavishly to those who are undeserving. Another word we might use for that is He is the gracious God. You ought to ask Him because He gives generously. It's who He is. And indeed, James's teaching here parallels his big brother Jesus's. When Jesus is teaching us to pray, to ask, seek, and knock, why? Why are we to ask for wisdom from God? Jesus just explains. He says, everyone who asks receives. Jesus says, the one who seeks finds. The one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? And if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father in heaven will give good gifts to those who ask him. To me, it's the overwhelming theme of the book of Genesis. We've been studying it on Thursday nights with the Bible study again and again, story after story. God's undeserving servants, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all of Jacob's sons are given lavish, eternal, spiritual, and physical blessings again and again and again. That's who who God is. He says you should ask, number one, because He is the generously giving God. Number two, not only is he generous, but he gives, as he notes, to all, to all, a special New Testament theme, not only to Jews, but also to Gentiles, not only to good people or religious people, not only to beautiful people or smart people, but even to you all, to anyone who asked, to whosoever might come, the wisdom needed for what it means to be complete in Christ, he gives to all. Thirdly, Number one, generously. Number two, to all. Number three, without reproach. So often we can give gifts with uh, strings attached or perhaps with hopes for leverage. Uh, So often we can give a a gift perhaps meant to teach a lesson, you know, to your sister-in-law or someone who had rambunctious children at Thanksgiving. You can slip them a parenting book perhaps into to really, you know, it's a gift, but, you know, you need this. Uh, There's a bit of reproach, in other words, in the giving of the gift, or perhaps a, a, a hope for a kickback on, on me, you know. No, the, the Lord gives generously without reproach. He needs no kickbacks from the gift He gives us. He is the all-sufficient God, the gracious God, the generously giving God. And in case He hadn't made His point with one, two, and three, generously, to all, without reproach, the last line of verse five, and it will be given Him. So you should write this verse out, James 1.5. You should put it in your wallet, stick it in the front of your Bible. You should wake up in the morning and pray and wave this paper at, the Lord, at our Lord. 
Take the receipt to him. He must come due. He makes the promise by the Holy Spirit to his, through his apostle James. You need to point to this verse in your parenting and in your grandparenting and in your parenting of adult children. Point to it in asking for wisdom and how to navigate high school as a Christian or how to navigate your office or as a SCAD student. You need to point to this verse to the Lord asking for wisdom, how to handle your marital conflict, how to order your finances, your time, your energy. This is a precious… I hope there's nobody in this church that wasn't already familiar with James 1.5. Take this one to the bank. It's here for you. But this wisdom that we can ask for and receive is, is not all that's needed to be complete in Christ. There's actually something even more fundamental than wisdom to be complete, and James shows us in the next verse, it's faith. Verse 6, secondly, thing we need, let him ask in faith with no doubting. Now, why? Why do you have to ask for wisdom in faith? And the first answer to that question is perhaps because James simply copying his older brother Jesus yet again. It's Jesus' teaching, Luke 17, Matthew 17. Jesus gives uh, perhaps the most memorable uh, teaching on this. Uh, if you have the faith the side of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, go into the ocean or the sea, and it will throw itself into the sea. Or he teaches more directly, Jesus, in Matthew 21, 22, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So the first reason you have to ask for wisdom by faith is because Jesus says so. But secondly, is that asking God, you know, praying for anything, really makes no sense without faith. Asking God for anything makes no sense if you don't believe, and as for, as for that matter, neither does wisdom. We might say that faith is a prerequisite for prayer. It's a prerequisite further for wisdom. Now, what are you doing praying if you are doubting God? Who are you praying to if you are doubting His power? What God are you praying to if you're doubting His goodness or His generosity or His nearness or His covenant blessing? Uh, you aren't praying to the true God. If you're doubting God as you're praying to Him, you're praying to some other God that is, than is the true God. If you knew the God to whom you're praying, you wouldn't be doubting Him at all. You see, there's a way in which praying without faith, praying while doubting God, is praying to a whole different God. If you knew the God, if you believe, it cuts it off at the knees. And really, without faith, wisdom also is, as biblically defined, makes no sense either. If you fundamentally don't trust God, even as you speak to Him, what does it even mean to ask for wisdom? To ask for a blessing or knowing how to apply His truth to His world for His blessing. What you're really praying for if you're not believing Him is actually some kind of luck. No, it's all self-contradictory. Before you can even get wisdom, before you can even pray for it, you have to have faith. You have to trust Him. You have to believe in Him. Verse 6b, with no doubting. The commentators all point out the, the difficulty here, and, and no one thinks that James means to rule out all honest struggles with any kind of doubt. Jesus, after all, doesn't 
slap around doubting Thomas as he struggles to get his mind around the bodily resurrected Christ. No, Jesus honors the prayer of the father of the boy in Mark 9 who cries out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I find it helpful to keep in mind our our fullest definition of biblical saving faith, famously made up of notitia, essentia, and fiducia. Notitia is that knowledge of the mind that is necessary for faith. Uh, The essentia is the assent of the will. Fiducia, we might say, is the trust in the heart. Mind, will, and heart, you see, all play a role in biblical full-orbed faith. Now, these distinctions aren't always clearly uh, made in the text, but the best sense that I can make out of the kind of doubt James is speaking of here is not so much an honest doubt of the mind, an intellectual struggle, but more perhaps a doubt in the will and the heart, a, a reticence to be truly a follower. And so that really brings us to our particular kind of doubt, which is illustrated by our third point. The third thing we need is to be a complete Christian. You need to have wisdom. Even more fundamentally, you have to have faith, and even a certain kind of faith without doubting that brings us to a a kind of integrity or a single-mindedness, a loyalty. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 6 again. It says, let him ask in faith with no doubting. And from here, he's talking about doubting. James is going to give us two memorable images from which we will work. Um, The first is there in verse 6. He says, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Then he explains, verse 7, For that person must not suppose you receive anything from the Lord. But verse 8, the second image is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That first picture of the wave, it's not a wave on the surf that predictably rolls up and crests nicely and comes in. No, it's, it's a wave out on the sea that pitches up and down and sideways and forwards and swallows whatever's thrown into it, is blown about unpredictable and unstable, chaotic. No, the, the unwise fool, not trusting God, Psalm 14, no, the fool says in his heart there is no God. He will not receive anything from the Lord, James says, verse 7. And the second image further clarifies. It's there in verse 8. He says he's a double-minded man. And we're tempted perhaps to picture a double-minded man with kind of like two heads or something, but no, the Greek here is interesting in itself. Uh, It seems like James is making a a word up here. More woodly in the Greek, it's a a double-souled man. He's split in his deepest sense of who he is. It seems like James is making up a a whole different category of struggle with not so much honest intellectual doubt, but a doubt in the soul, in the heart, the will. See, a man undecided is unstable. A man or woman at a war within themselves is, you know, stuck between the, the dock and the boat. And if you're stuck trying to hold the boat to the dock, you end up often in the water. If you try to to sit on the fence, undecided and uncommitted, you'll be in pain before very long. No, there is no wisdom for this kind of person. There's no true faith. They don't know about God if they are living uh, for Him or if they're really living for themselves. The double-minded or the double-souled is split. 
trying to have your cake and eat it too, trying to enjoy the applause and the pleasures of the world while also getting in good with God. No, this is what James will come to more clearly in chapter 4 and verse 4 when he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. No, we we can't have a double-souledness or a a question about where our ultimate loyalties lie. Stability, true faith, integrity. Wisdom demands that you're either fully in or fully out. As Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart, your soul, your everything will be also. So that before you can have faith to pray, before you can have the wisdom from God through prayer, you have to despair of yourself and throw yourself down, we say, at Jesus' feet, submitting yourself to God. After all, what is the beginning of wisdom? But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, as Proverbs teaches us. There needs to be a submission there. There's a a bending of the knee before we can ever come to prayer. And I would argue further, if we're being thorough, that truly any ever sustained intellectual doubt is, is rarely a problem of the mind, more often truly a problem of the will and the heart. Because intellectually, nothing makes less sense than the unbelieving worldview. Or to put it positively, it's only the Christian worldview that truly makes sense of the world and human experience. Indeed, the entire scholastic philosophical university endeavor to explain what is without God has been an abject failure. Uh, The results of modernism have been relativistic postmodernism. In the realms of ontology and epistemology and ethics, there is there's no scholarly consensus. In fact, there's a lack of belief in any kind of true truth at all that beauty is a real thing that exists, or that uh, there is a, a universal right and wrong. No, the world boasts in its proud, self-righteous, intellectual skepticism and, and being agnostic, above the fray, sophisticated, undogmatic, unconvinced, cynical, a double-minded, double-souled, uncommitted, unstable man. As Paul explains in Romans 1.22, Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Indeed, I think what we are watching in our own civilization is the result of generation after generation reaping the anguish of being a people that are like waves, double-minded and unstable and everything, without unity, without coherence, without meaning. Every person knows in their soul, on their conscience, that there is such a thing as ultimate truth, goodness, and beauty. And yet, our civilization outside of Christianity has no way to account for them. Objectivity ends up being some sort of white supremacy, or we fall into some base, broad subjectivism. Even our quote-unquote conservative Republican politicians speak about my truth or her truth or his truth. No, even Chris Christie this week uh, flips on the same-sex marriage question, citing the new policy of the Roman Catholics. 
blown about by the winds of public opinion. No loyalty, no integrity, no single-mindedness, no submission to the revelation of God we have in Christ. We need, to, I think, to protect our children, give them the chance to learn of the beauty, coherence, and order of God's creation. Consistency from our own parents and their, and their piety, from uh, our own ways of thinking, indeed, is one of the greatest arguments for legitimacy of, legitimacy of the faith. Integrity of parents, integrity of worldview. It's one of the things I love about our church. There is a There is an attempt to connect our soteriology with our doxology, our our doctrines of salvation with how we worship. we, We connect the theology to life. There is a submission to God. We attempt in all things, touching every area of life, so that there is a a beauty and a coherence. Indeed, this is what the, the university was originally meant to do, to bring unity to the diversity. But once the Bible was overlooked, the triune God sidelined, the only being who is both in his essence a unity and a diversity, a three and in one, the one who created all things, who holds all things together, and whom all things find their diversity and unity beginning and end, once he is jettisoned, we are left but as double-souled, blown about by the wind like waves, unstable in all our ways, incapable of wisdom or faith. The double-souled person can't be wise. They can't even pray. See, to pray by faith means bending the knee, submitting to the claims of Christ, claiming allegiance to Him. This, we might say, is the foundational stone upon which someone might become complete in Christ. Because Christ Himself, of course, is our target. He is our teleus. He's our end he is wisdom embodied. When John chapter 1 calls him the Word made flesh, the logos, that logos word in Greek ancient philosophy being the, the highest ideal of thought, Christ being that, Christ being one who's there in the beginning, the, the Proverbs 8 wisdom who is with God at the beginning. Christ is indeed the fulfillment of one who fears God and is wise. Further, He is, of course, the man of faith, trusting his Father for everything he says, everywhere he goes, everything he does, even unto the cross. And, of course, Christ, our Lord Jesus, it is he who is single-minded, loyal, a man of integrity, who prays in Gethsemane with no doubt, not my will, but thy will be done. Submission even in that moment. That's the path of wisdom. Of course, we all fall short in our doubts, our double-mindedness, our foolishness. But in Christ, by faith, we grow in Him and surely and slowly become like Him. Let's pray to that end. May the mind of Christ, my Savior, live in me from day to day by His love and power controlling all I do and say. Father, may we be those who in allegiance follow your way and are not blown about by the opinions of what is quote-unquote reasonable or unreasonable. But Father, you who establishes all reason and all consistency and who made the world, Father, may we follow your way. Father, help us to ask in faith. 
Give us the faith we need so that we might have the wisdom we so desire to follow you and to see even our trials and tribulations as joys. Help us, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.